Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the generous listeners who continue to support Talking Tudors on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors Patreon family. Please visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors Patreon family to instantly unlock access to exclusive posts, including audio releases and videos. Patrons are also eligible to attend additional monthly live talks and to enter patron-only monthly giveaways. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled to welcome Brigitte Webster back to the podcast to talk about food in Tudor England. Brigitte is a qualified teacher of home economics and history, making her the perfect accomplished Tudor housewife in modern-day Britain. As a competent and experienced cook with a deep passion for Tudor history, she fully immersed herself in archaeological experimental cookery, which also motivated her to grow period vegetables, herbs and fruit to achieve the most authentic end results. In 2019, she and her husband bought a small Tudor manor that had escaped ruthless modernization. This will form the hub of their Tudor and 17th century experience, where guests can enjoy hospitality in a place for like-minded people who can come together and embrace a stepping back into culinary Tudor England. Brigitte has appeared on Professor Susanna Lipscomb's TV series, Walking Tudor England, and is a regular contributor to the magazine Tudor Places. Let's dive straight into our conversation. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, Brigitte. How are you? Hello. Yes, thank you very much. I'm, I'm very good. Thank you. And I'm so glad I'm allowed back on your fabulous podcast. <laughs> thank you. It's always a pleasure to have you here. I'll ask you just to introduce yourself because we always have new listeners. So it's really lovely for them to learn a little bit about you. Yes, I'm Brigitte Webster and I generally introduce myself as the perfect accomplished Tudor housewife in the 21st century Britain, because that's what I have been doing. I am actually a qualified teacher in cookery and history, but I've made it my mission to bring Tudor cooking and food to the Tudor community. And that's what I'm doing. Uh, we do it from a base, which is a Tudor 
home, uh, a small manor here in Norfolk, which does need quite a lot of work. So that's always going on in the background. And yes, I grow my Tudor vegetables and fruit in the garden. And I just basically try and relive Tudor life as authentically as it can be done safely and then share that experience with people who are interested like yourself. (laughs) Yes, I am very interested and I think you do a marvellous job at bringing all that information to the community. So before we dive into, we're going to be talking about Tudor food, but before we dive into the sort of nitty nitty gritty of that, I want you to please introduce your new book to us. So exciting. Yes, um, I am indeed very proud to finally share the news that my book Eating with the Tudors was launched in July. That's eight years of practical research and cooking before almost two more years of putting the practical element and the academic research on paper. But it has now finally paid off. But as every author can confirm, publishing a book is no no easy task. Uh, It's full of roller coaster emotions, anything between absolute devastation and the feeling of being on cloud nine when you finally hold that book in your hands. Yes, that's a marvellous feeling, isn't it? After all the years of work, to have a tangible thing that you can say you've created is is amazing. So congratulations. Very, very exciting. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about the subject of your book and, and Tudor food in general. So maybe we can start by you just telling us a little bit about the eating habits of royalty and the nobility. Yes. And now royalty and nobility have left us numerous accounts of what they ate when and how and like today everybody was keen to learn what the king or the queen had for dinner and how the rich feasted so there are contemporary chroniclers like William Harrison and John Stowe who who do give us detailed accounts of food being consumed by the nobility and also of course royal accounts and account books are littered literally littered with expenditures on food and food gifts received we are therefore well informed about what was on the menu and the sort of food they liked Tudor physicians such as Andrew Board and Thomas Mufford and Thomas Elliot, Thomas Corgan, a lot of Thomases about in that, but my favourite Henry Butts, they all enlighten us about what food was considered healthy for the rich and the poor. Just imagine that sort of advice given Today, you know, MPs saying, right, if you're rich, you eat this, and if you're poor, you're better off eating that. God God forbid. But then that was common practice. But we also have letters and diaries that provide us with information on what culinary delights were used to maintain friendly relationships with friends and family. 
But werewolves, funny enough, interestingly enough, werewolves can also reveal food. And in the case of the person who built our home, Sir Edward Chamberlain, he instructed in his will that roasted and boiled beef is to be served at the dinner following his funeral. And that is actually a whole clause in his last will, which is quite interesting for me in particular. But all those documents do confirm that the diet of the noble and the wealthy people was definitely rich in game, meat, poultry, and fish. But as we might know, however, that there were plenty of so-called lean days on which no animal produce produce was permitted and so-called dainty vegetables and fruit featured a more uh, a lot more on the daily diet and like today expensive imported and exclusive food was highly regarded uh, especially at the very top of society who could afford that to give you an example peaches apricots asparagus globe artichokes and even oranges were clearly the domain of the nobility and the court but also expensive spices and sugar was one of them featured regularly at the dinner table at the court sometimes even as part of a kind of centerpiece which was to be admired rather than eaten and according to everybody's status, nobility would be entitled to a certain number of dishes at every meal. Mind you, dishes doesn't just mean a plate full of food. It could mean a whole big bird like a turkey or a swan. And also, it entitled you to eat at a very specific location at the court where you then were allowed to dine and Basically, the higher up your rank was, the more privacy you were permitted. And if you were lower down, you had to share the great hall with hundreds of other people. Yeah, that's also interesting and, and really works nicely with the next point that I wanted to talk to you about, because I find etiquette so interesting as well, the dining etiquette. And you were just talking a little bit there about where people ate. But do you want to tell us a little bit more about the specifics about how you actually ate your food? It's quite interesting it because it's so different to what we see on TV, in movies, yes. and, you know, the media does tend to get that part of the society very wrong because due to the dramatic effect before historical accuracy often used by the film industry, we are being made to believe that table manners at court in Tudor times was nothing but crude coarse and disgusting in in the eyes of even today's society. The truth, however, looks very different. All the evidence actually points at a very different, civilised and ordered ritual surrounding the whole dining experience in polite society. So 
To dine elegantly was an essential social skill needed at the court, and it was taught right from childhood. And the level of proficiency depended on your status at court. So you would be quickly called out if you pretended to be of a higher rank if your table manners didn't reflect that. So dining and serving at a noble or royal table required indeed years of training in etiquette, how to carve food and how to serve it appropriately. And it required a sound working knowledge of task-specific vocabulary on top of that. And that's why children of the noble class were sent to serve at a different household, preferably one slightly higher above your own status, to learn those essential skills right from an early age on. And this is indeed an extensive topic in itself. So as we are going to listen and hear about that in a lot more detail at your upcoming week, especially weekend. I think we just point out there is a lot to be learned and it's not at all what we believe it's going to be like. So I would suggest that your listeners will tune in to the a weekend at the Tudor Court and then they will find out all the details. Oh, I really hope they do. It's going to be an exciting weekend. And I'm so glad that you're part of it, by the way. Really, really glad. You mentioned earlier, Brigitte, about some lean days, you called them, where obviously meat wasn't eaten. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those dietary restrictions that were actually enforced by the church. Yes, yes, indeed. So before the Reformation, the Catholic Church restricted the consumption of meat-based produce to just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Sunday. So twice a week, Friday and Saturday, were those so-called lean or fast days when um, meat, eggs, milk, cheese, and butter had to be replaced with uh, fish, olive oil, or vegetables, any other meat-based product, basically. So no meat was allowed on Friday to commemorate the crucifixion, and the food intake was reduced to one meal a day on top of that. So no meat, and only once a day were you allowed to eat. Saturdays were meat-free in respect of the Virgin Mary. And during the whole period of Lent, which was basically 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter, was also a very strict meat-free period in the religious calendar. And what most people are not aware of is at Lent before Christmas too was another time of fasting before the big feast on Christmas Day marked the end of it. One that few people know about is that uh, the same applied to Ember Days. So those 
marking the four quarters of the year. On those, no meat was allowed, but dairy products were allowed. And um, funny enough, as so often, the wealthy simply bought their way out by, you know, buying expensive imported olive oil, no really harsh, a harsh thing at all, to replace lard and suet or butter. But sadly, the vast majority of people just couldn't afford that, you know. And the church, you often wonder why that is. I mean, why did the church not understand that the people at the bottom of society couldn't afford very expensive imported olive oil? But we mustn't forget that the church had based its ruling on Italy's warmer climate, where olive trees were growing and olive oil was available to everybody, even the lowest of society. Obviously, in England, that didn't apply. And as so often, <laughs> money could purchase you a dispensation, but a few, actually, the church did realize in the end that maybe, you know, that wasn't quite so ideal for the poor. And a few northern countries were made exempt from that harsh ruling in about, yeah, the late 1400s, simply based on the people's hardship by not being allowed to eat any animal-based fat, which was essential for the labouring class. Now, um, Brigitte, the 16th century obviously was a time of great change in so many different areas and food was not an exception. So do you want to talk to us a little bit about the changes in, let's say, ingredients in maybe some preparation techniques and even attitudes to food that occurred during this, this period? Well, the Tudor age is when food and its preparation changed very much from its medieval character during Henry VII, lots of spices, very thin vinegar-based sauces to accompany roast meat to the more recognisable food of the early modern period. So just within those hundred years, major changes occurred. And whilst under Henry VII, as said, expensive spices and <laughs> the typical ground meat dishes dominated. Yeah, very much. Uh, it always reminds me of the kind of food you would serve to an elderly person with no more teeth. So it really was just very ground up meat with spices, uh, which you could spoon out of a bowl rather, not, not cut my kind of meal anyway. So that dominated in Henry VIII's time. But by the time his granddaughter, Elizabeth, sat on the throne, those highly valued spices were beginning to lose superiority and started clearly started to give away to herbs instead. Now, when I say herbs, I am using the Tudor term herbs. That means clearly all the herbs, but also any green-leafed vegetables like cabbage, kale, lettuce, spinach, you name it, those all were referred to as herbs. And that 
rather ghastly sounding ground meat was replaced by bite-sized meat served with specific sauces and salads started to become trendy as well. And obviously, uh, when we talk late uh, 16th century, new food imports from the new world started very exciting, especially to enrich the palate of the rich. Most noticeably, I think we should mention sugar, turkey, kidney beans and pumpkins, which were known as pompions. I think we should rename them pompions. Yeah, that sounds much uh, more uh, interesting. Pumpkin, yeah, pompion. So whilst at the start of the century, people were clearly advised against eating vegetables and fruit raw, towards the end of the century, physicians were beginning to open up to the very idea that perhaps some vegetables and fruit could be consumed raw as long as it was done in moderation. And what I like is with the addition of good wine and sugar. That doesn't sound too bad to me then. That sounds good. I wonder what they think of today's <laughs> unpopular raw food diets and things that people go on. <laughs> that would be really interesting. So, Brigitte, I'm sure that Henry VIII never thought about or worried about how food was going to be preserved, but how did the everyday people preserve their food to make sure they had enough, obviously, throughout winter, etc.? You know, the Tudors were indeed the masters of food preservation, but really they had to be as there was clearly no means of stopping food from going off. And in fact, if the Tudors could have watched our miserable attempts at food stockpiling during the COVID pandemic, for uh, for instance, they would have had good reason to laugh at us. So preserving food packed in bay salt or air-dried and sometimes smoked, like fish, smoked herring, was a method mostly used for meat, but fish too. And in my research, it has shown to be the most commonly method that they used. With the arrival of cheaper sugar, so still... (laughs) out of the league for most, but they're more accessible. So towards the end of the 16th century, with the arrival of uh, lots more sugar from the West Indies, fruit for the first time was able to be conserved as a kind of marmalade or in syrup. Now, when we are talking marmalade, we don't mean marmalade in the modern sense. It was more like fruit leather, which could be cut up in little squares and eaten by just um, picking it up with your fingers. That that is why the Tudors were so the, the wealthy Tudors so keen on sugar because it did allow them to actually preserve fruit in a manner that was palatable to them as well. When we look at pickled items, they featured too, you know, stuff emerge in in vinegar that, that obviously keeps most food available for longer. We still have the pickled herring for instance, but orchard fruit was uh, cut in slices 
and there are various instructions on how to leave them out in the summer sun to dry and to be consumed later. But it was mostly about um, using sugar, using vinegar and salt and drying items because keeping them cold, cool or even frozen was nothing that the Tudors had ever seen. So let's just go back to the herbs that you were discussing earlier. So what were the the sort of most popular herbs that you'd find in everybody's kind of kitchen garden or herb garden? Right. Herbs were a lot more important to the average Tudor, whether it was people at the royal court or down at the very bottom uh, in society. Everybody used herbs and almost everybody grew herbs in their kitchen or herb garden. And as we were saying uh, earlier on, herbs refer to also leafy, leafy vegetables. But they did divide herbs into three main groups. There were the pot herbs to flavor food. There were medicinal herbs to treat the ill. And the last group, the sweet herbs which they used for strewing on the floor. And that also served as a kind of room freshener and apparently kept uninvited little insects at bay. But Thomas Tusser, who was advisor to farmers, recommended 45 herbs in the kitchen garden. Can you imagine growing 45 different herbs in your kitchen garden? I think I can't think of any modern garden centre who could uh, provide 45 different ones. But he did in his publication, uh, 500 Points of Good Husbandry from 1577. The ones we would still recognise from that list would be cabbage, Beets, borage, fennel, leeks, lettuce, marigold, turnip, onions, parsley, rosemary, sage, spinach, thyme, cucumbers, and artichokes. So you can see that the uh, the Tudors really had a much broader sense of what a herb should be. The medicinal herbs helped doctors to balance out the humors, the bodily humors that were possibly got gone out of sync, making you feel, feel ill and not well. And people suffering from a fever, for instance, required herbs with cold and wet properties to balance that out again. Strewing herbs such as lavender, oh, I love lavender, were used for fragrance Uh, And tansy is probably the most well-known for pest control. And yeah, so that's a very quick summary of the huge topic of herbs in Tudor England. Oh, interesting. Goodness, I have trouble keeping my basil alive. I don't know how I'd go with 45 different (laughs) herbs. But then then again, basil is indeed the most difficult one to keep alive. And even the Tudors... Oh, Brigitte, you've made me feel so much better. Thank you so much for saying that. (laughs) Now, the other fascinating topic when it comes to food that I just love hearing about is, of course, the practice of giving food as gifts, which was so popular at the Tudor court. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The traditional gift of a food hamper at Christmas still 
a tradition I witness in Britain at Christmas does indeed remind us of this long-standing tradition of giving food, not just for Christmas, but at other events too. And in Tudor England, the exchange of food gifts was a means of maintaining relationships and also to seek favour. Now, birthdays were not celebrated, but food gifts throughout the year were used for negotiations as well as a way of saying thank you or to simply gain approval. Now, gifts in Tudingen were always seen as a form of, you know, exchange, a little bit like uh, Christmas cards were handled here in Britain. I'll give you a card and then I get, I get one back. But in Tudingen, the giver would always expect something in return or feel humiliated in public. Now, venison and sugar would, would be the highest ranking food gifts you could give. And they are regularly mentioned in royal documents and household books. Even in the Lyle letters, and they do feature a lot. Towards the close of the century, we are beginning to witness gifts of turkey and orange marmalade which is interesting because the original marmalade was always prepared with quince. But towards the end of the century, we do see orange marmalade used for New Year's gifts as well. Uh, and we know that Elizabeth I must have absolutely adored them because in her list of New Year's food gifts, they, they make a regular appearance. Now, commoners would gift homegrown or produced food, such as chickens, fruit or pies. And royalty always attracted luxury food. I mean, no surprise there, really, which had to be imported, so very expensive. But also food out of season was most welcome. Hence, old apples listed in some of the royal accounts given in spring were actually a treat. Most people would say, well, how can old apples be something worthy of the queen and being written down as a gift? Well, because they were out of season and therefore that much rarer, they were a treat. And I find that the most astounding thing. Yeah, it's so interesting. I love looking at those accounts with all the different food they receive, especially Thomas Cromwell was one to receive a lot of a lot of food gifts from all over the place, all these petitioners. So, you know, now if we want to to cook something or learn how to prepare something, we just jump on the internet or buy a recipe book. But how were cooking practices and, and recipes actually circulated in the 16th century? Well, cookery books were actually amongst the first published genre since the introduction of the printing press in England. And the very first printed recipe collection we know about is called A Noble Book of Fests, Royal and Cookery. And it was printed the first time in around 1500, in 1500 by a printer 
called Richard Pineson in London. And this one had 15 recipes in it, but mostly did just list what royal menus included. Later, through the whole century, there were 15 recipe or cookery books that were printed in the English language or before 1603. And in my book, Eating with the Tudors, I have gone out of my way to make sure I used at least three recipes from each one to reflect those early recipe books. Yes, that's one of the, I think, well, there's so much that's wonderful about your book, but the the recipes are just fantastic because I've seen that people are actually cooking them and having a go. And I've seen pictures online, which is wonderful. So do you have a favorite Tudor recipe from your book? That will depend on when you ask me. It it clearly depends on the seasons. And each season holds one of my favourite recipes. I personally am no great fan of meat. And I I prefer vegetarian um, food in my 21st century life. Therefore, in the book, I do prefer all the fish recipes and all the vegetable-based recipes. And there are quite a lot of them. Speaking lean days, you know, we are well provided with vegetarian and fish recipes. But for Christmas, I do really like the traditional Tudor mince pies with the heavy meat content. And I also would never say no to a Tudor fruit pie or tart. Now, to me, those are out of this world. They are so much nicer than any modern apple pie or fruit pie. And yeah, I would say, you know, once you've eaten a Tudor recipe, fruit pie or tart, you would never go back to the 21st century version. That sounds amazing. I love apple pie, so I'm going to have to give it a go because now you've got me really interested and I want to to taste the Tudor version. So I thought we could end just by maybe touching on some of those misconceptions or myths about food in the 16th century that you've come across in your many years, obviously, of working in this area and researching this area. Funny enough, it was those myths that sparked off one of my major interests to start with, because it didn't take me long to figure out that it was just a myth. There was no evidence behind it. So I I do dedicate a lot of research into this myth-busting thing. The problem with these food-related, Tudor food-related myths are that they are deeply rooted and All of them seem to have started through the 19th century. That's a time before a deeper understanding of food culture in Tudor, England, was established. Probably the most prevalent food myth is that spices were used to cover up rotten meat. Now, that is the one I always have to put people right. I just cannot listen to it and let it go. Because knowing understanding, appreciating how expensive spices were in Tudor times. There is just logically no sense that any anything that would make sense, why somebody who could afford to treat people or to buy meat, let that go off and then try and fix it with 
even more expensive spices. There's just no logic behind it. We have also no evidence of that being done. There is no 16th century contemporary notice about it. So clearly everything points at the 19th century. And the day I find out who started it, that day I will go public with it. Yeah, another one is that in Tudor times, nobody drank water because it was all contaminated. Well, like today, people knew which water was safe to drink. And it's only fair to acknowledge that they indeed preferred the taste of ale or beer to water. I mean, I don't like water. I know it's good for you, but I too have to add a little bit of flavor to my water. So it is understandable that the Tudors did the same. And actually, there are several recipes that ask for fair water. And uh, a number of Tudor physicians also talk about people drinking plain water. There is actually a debate going on. One aboard, he is not in favour of drinking water. He calls it not wholesome by itself. Now, that doesn't say it's not healthy or it will make you ill. It just says it's too plain boring. And his colleague, Sir Elliot, in his book, The Castle of Health, he is very much uh, in praise of water. He calls it a pure matter. And he does actually encourage people to drink water. So I think that settles that one. The last one I mentioned, simply because it's one that I don't seem to be able to put right, is that Sir Francis Drake, also Walter Raleigh, introduced the potato to Tudor England. Wow. The disappointing fact is we simply do not know by whom, when and how the potato came to England. And Without any evidence, giving credit to Mr. Drake is purely conjecture. And unless he found a way to keep the potatoes he was given in America from rotting over a period of two years whilst on his way back home, he is, in my opinion, a very unlikely candidate. And as for Raleigh, well, he never even made it to a part of America where the potatoes grew. He is more likely to have seen and handled the sweet potato, which doesn't even grow in England as it is accustomed to warmer climates. Yeah, that is one that I see a lot. Actually, all those, all three that you've mentioned come yeah. up a lot yeah. in, in all different ways. So, Brigitte, when, when do we know that the potato was in England? When's the kind of confirmed source for the potato in England? Well, we, we certainly know that by 1597, it was grown in some gardens in London, but more as a novelty plant and not necessarily eaten. In fact, it's I have dedicated a whole essay at university to this subject. So we definitely know it was grown by a very few people who grew it as a novelty plant. They might have tried to cook it, but that's a 
far cry from saying that people in England ate the potato in Elizabethan times. Uh, there's a huge difference between be, it being used for scientific research, which is what was done. To be perfectly frank, the first evidence of the potato being really used by the mass, 18th century is the first time we oh. can really honestly say without any doubt that people started to eat the potato. But in Tudor times, it was just a novelty plant that some people liked to experiment with. Absolutely fascinating. It's all, It's been such a fascinating discussion. And I encourage everyone who is listening to, of course, buy themselves a copy of your book. Perhaps we can all prepare some nice meals for Christmas and the upcoming festive season. And of course, Brigitte, as, as she mentioned, will be one of seven speakers at a weekend at the Tudor Court coming up on the 21st, 22nd of October. So I invite you all to please join us there so you can hear more about Tudor food and, of course, dining etiquette, which I can't wait to see Brigitte's lecture on that. But Brigitte, thank you so much again for taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule to talk Tudors with us. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Always a delight, always a joy. And uh, yes, looking forward to the weekend at the Tudor Court with you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music